Well, isn't that great? We've got like seven kids, unless I miscounted. And I'm not talking about the usual kids that are here on Tuesday or Thursday night, but the ones that are actual chronological kids. So it's good to see them. You know, if we had, if we could count on some kind of consistency, uh, we could start having some kind of class for the kids either Tuesday or Thursday night. And I, because I've noticed that we've had more kids a couple of nights during the week, so that would be good to get that started. Okay, uh, Saturday morning, we're going to have, uh, we'll be here, some of us will be here early getting coffee going and things like that. Uh, doors open at 7.30, coffee, some uh, refreshments will be available. The guest speakers are Alexander, Alexandra Morale-Miller, who is the Republican candidate for Harris County Judge, and also the Republican candidate for Harris County Treasurer, Scott, Kyle Scott. Then remember, a week from Saturday... We have Jay Collins' memorial service at 11 o'clock on the 30th. And then we have, uh, beginning on the 1st, uh, Chafer Seminary Fall Registration. And there are, some, uh, there are some good courses there. I don't remember what they are right now. I looked at them yesterday. But, but um, my favorite part was that I'm not teaching this semester, so that's one load off my off my back, but I will be teaching in the spring. I'll be going back and doing another, we'll be doing another recording of a, a history of doctrine. All right, so um, I think that's it for announcements. Everybody did a great job with Vacation Bible School, got lots of good reports, and just appreciate all the work from all the parents and all the kids and everybody who worked to decorate everything. It was just uh, just tremendous to see Everybody pulling together. That was uh, that was really good. So I, I really appreciate all the all the hard work. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. I did get a report from uh, Dan Ingram just before I left the house, and his brother texted me. He had an MRI uh, today, and he's um, uh, the doctors are uh, pleased with where he is, and uh, but they have several things that probably that they've got some protocols for him to, to do and uh, not to do. He's just not to do as much as he's been doing because that's probably what led to uh, a little seizure a couple of weeks ago. So he needs to not do as much and not be as fatigued. So that's um, that's what's going on with Dan. Continue to pray for, continue to pray for him. So let's, uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank, thank you so much for the promises we have in Scripture that you are an ever-present help in time of trouble that as we face the circumstances of our lives, there are always things that go on because we live in a fallen world with fallen people, and this is the devil's world. He is the prince and the power of the air, the ruler of this world, and the god of this age. And too often our optimism is really unfounded, but due to your grace, we do have optimistic times, and we thank you for that. Father, we pray for our country. We pray that there will be a turnaround uh, this year. Uh, we are concerned about that because we want to have a nation where we do not be, need to be so concerned about our leadership and our education. 
the teachers that are teaching our kids, uh, the people who are running our corporations and uh, dealing with many other aspects of our society. These institutions have been taken over by those who have rejected a Judeo-Christian worldview, and uh, we just see the deterioration. But, Father, we pray that there will be those who are responsive to your word who will uh, recognize that the real issue is getting right with you and walking with you and learning the word, and that's the only thing that's going to really truly turn this situation around. Father, we pray that as we study tonight, we might be encouraged and motivated in our spiritual life because of what we learn and because what your word reveals about the overcomers. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John tonight. We'll start around 1 John chapter 2, looking at a couple of passages. And while you are turning there, just a little comment on what's been on the news the last couple of days, that if you are any kind of a uh, person paying attention to current events, you will have noticed that uh, uh, Putin uh, has spent time with Iran, formerly known as Persia, and that always gets the prophecy prognosticators and pornographers all excited and twittering because when you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the uh, armies of Meshach and Tubal coming together to invade Israel from the north, it gets them all all excited and they start um, uh, prophesying and predicting all kinds of things. It's been going on really ever since Putin invaded Ukraine. And then Putin went over to Turkey yesterday. I understand that Erdogan had him sit and wait for a while, which I thought was pretty good. But, see, Turkey is where you have the the basic historical location of Meshach and Tubal and, and um, you know, all of this. And so people always get all excited. I remember back in the 80s when you had eight nations in the in the European Union. And everybody would say, oh, as soon as we get 10, it's the 10-nation confederacy, and then we're going to see the rise of the Antichrist. And everybody was just all excited, and it went from like 8 to 12 in about a year. And if you blinked, you didn't realize you had too many now. So we never know what's going on, and it just drives me nuts watching these people who get everybody all excited. What we need to be excited about is living our Christian life, being involved in the here and now and not assuming that Jesus is going to come tomorrow. I hope he will, and I know all of you do as well, but uh, it could be another 20 years, another 50 years, another 100 years. There, just because it looks like Jesus could be at the doorstep, he walks slow. So don't get distracted by all of this prophecy prognostication. Focus on, on, on the word. So we're continuing our study out of Philippians 1.6 and 1.10, where we're looking at the day of Christ, a phrase that is used in both Philippians 1.6, until the day of Jesus Christ, and Philippians 1.10, till the day of Christ. And we've addressed the question, what is the day of Christ, and how does that relate to the day of the Lord? I pointed out that the day of the Lord comes at the uh, in the tribulation period, primarily at the end of the tribulation, is the greatest period just before the Lord returns to the earth in judgment. Day of the Lord returns, re, refers to a time of judgment on the earth, whereas the day of Christ uh, refers to the time period that is basically uh, at the link together with the rapture. As the church is raptured in the um, twinkling of an eye, according to 1 Corinthians, I think it's 1552, twinkling of an eye is like 164th of a second. So if you blink, you will totally miss it. 
And this is, and what happens immediately following the rapture is the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, when church age believers are evaluated for their spiritual life, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity in this life. And sometimes people get really uptight about that because they think this is going to be a time when all their sins are going to be exposed. And as I pointed out when we went through 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verses uh, 12 to 18, that this is an exposure of sin and failure. It's an exposure of what we did in the power of the Spirit, of what was done well. And so that is the key thing at the judgment seat of Christ. And the reality there is that there's going to be two groups that come out of the judgment seat of Christ. Group number one are those who are rewarded and have rewards, and group number two is those that don't have rewards. So it's very clear from that passage that you're going to have a distinction made between uh, believers as we go into uh, into eternity. And that brings up the issue that is often debated, and that is the issue of the overcomer. And there's two views among dispensationalists and and among uh, premillennialists. And one is that every true believer is an overcomer. Now, that view, as I pointed out the last couple of times, is consistent with lordship salvation because of the way they handle the passages in 1 John that we've gone through the last couple of lessons where they, they, they talk, the, the passages talk about the one who is born from above or the one who is born from God or he who is born from God. And it sounds on the surface that what that phrase is talking about is those who are regenerated, just a simple phrase for a believer, and that the believer overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 4, and 5. And so I, today I decided I haven't done this in a long time because I haven't taught this in a long time. I decided to do a search through all of these um, hundreds of theological journals that I have in Lagos. I mean, we have just hundreds and hundreds of these. And I searched on overcomer in a title or a boldface heading or a heading. I figure... You know, it could come up in sentence here or there, and I would have hundreds of hits to go through. But if this was the topic of part of a of a journal article, it would either be in the title or be in a be in one of the major headings or a boldface heading, something like that. And so I searched on that, and I searched on First John five four and five. And I came up with just a handful of articles. And what was discouraging is that there's just sort of this assumption, as I pointed out in 1 John 5, 4, and 5, that when it says, the one who is born again overcomes the world, that this is talking about the believer. And it's just assumed. And that because of the way it's written, the one who is born again overcomes, then the overcomer is therefore someone who is just a believer. And I've shown you the flaws with that. And, in fact, I had uh, had breakfast or had coffee this morning with Jim. He had breakfast. I had coffee. And uh, he's doing well, and we caught up on things. But we talked about this a while. And then I had a couple of other conversations with other um, pastors and those who are, have their doctorates in theology and who have worked through a lot of these issues uh, they've been in the pulpit and been around for 20 or 30 years. And we all recognize this. Nobody deals with this. They look at overcomer and they isolate it from the context. And there's nobody who's trying to understand what that means in relation to uh, those who are born again. It just isn't there. And I'll go back through some commentaries, but you just don't find anybody dealing with it, which is very disappointing. So we have these two groups of believers uh, those who have rewards and those who do not. Now, this situation that we see is not something, this di- di- distinction between these two interpretations isn't something that's new. And I ran across a couple of quotes today. We probably won't get to the second one uh, by Donald Gray Barnhouse. Now, 
Barnhouse was a great Bible expositor from an earlier generation. He died about 1960. One of the uh, he died from a brain tumor. They discovered it late, and he was put in the hospital. And he died within about 30 days. But it changed his behavior. Here was a man who was a dispensationalist almost all of his career, and he wasn't. Uh, he he was a, uh, against the charismatic gifts, against the Pentecostal theology. And during the last couple of years, those were two areas that he just reversed himself on. And he didn't realize it till he almost died that he had a brain tumor. It char- changed his behavior. I've often thought about writing a book on. Uh, significant theologians and pastors in church history who stayed too long in the pulpit and had behavioral changes and theology changes as a result of of health changes and and senility. I mean, Martin Luther just became virulently anti-Semitic during the last couple of years. All the horrible things you read that he wrote about the Jews were written during the last two years of his life. So, you know, I've got a pact with Pam that starting in about five years, uh, we're going to, every year it's an evaluation time. Should I be in the pulpit another six months or another year? Because, you know, I've just seen way too many pastors. Uh, One of my favorite seminary professors, I was his TA, teaching assistant, when I was, uh, I think, my second or third year in seminary, was uh, Bob Leitner. And some of you know of Dr. Leitner, and he was a a very solid professor at Dallas Seminary. And he told me when he turned 75, he said, my prayer every day is that I won't live, that, that the Lord will give me the wisdom to know when I need to quit so I don't embarrass him or the church for what I say or do in the pulpit. And I think that is a very wise decision because there are too many men who get in the pulpit and think that they are just so important to the plan of God that they're going to die in the pulpit when the Lord may let you live to a point where it's not going to be pretty. So we need to exercise some wisdom. But Barnhouse said, we can be sure that at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be a marked difference between the Christian who has lived his life before the Lord, clearly discerning what was for the glory of God, or a nominal Christian. All will be in heaven, but the difference between them will be eternal. We may be sure that the consequences of our character will survive the grave. Then say our character survives. Notice, he said the consequences of our character Um, will survive the grave and that we shall face those consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it's not going to be in terms of the exposure of sin and all the wrong things we did. We'd be there forever for some of us. It's going to be because there's just not anything there that's rewardable. And that's what we studied when we went through 1 Corinthians 3, that there are those at the end that have all of their works burned up and they enter into heaven as through fire. And so they're going to have roles and responsibilities in the kingdom, but they're going to be just uh, very, very uh, basic. And then we went to Revelation 3.21. Now, we won't get to the seven letters in... Uh, seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 today. I thought we were, and I spent a lot of time on that today, went back and looked at my notes from last week and went, oops, I'm not going to get there tonight. And this is the last overcomer statement at the end of Revelation 3. To him who overcomes, or you really could just translate it to the overcomer, because as I pointed out, this is a, a, a nominal participle, so it just functions like a noun. There's no v- real verbal aspect to it at all. Uh, to the overcomer, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So what we see there is there are two thrones mentioned here. There's the Father's throne, and that first of all, when Jesus arrived in heaven at the ascension, he sat at the right hand of the Father on his throne. And that was his reward 
for having overcome the world. Now, it doesn't say what he overcame in this passage, but we must ask that question, what did he overcome? And it is that he overcame, uh, he overcame the world. That's in John 16:33. Very important passage that uh, he says to his disciples just before the high priestly prayer, John 17, just before Garden of Gethsemane and his arrest. So this is before the cross or anything related to the cross. He says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Just open the paper, turn on the news in the morning and five minutes and you know that we have tribulation. Uh, but be of good cheer. I have perfect tense. I have already, it's completed in past time with the results continuing. I have overcome the world. That is a profound statement because when we get to First John tonight, we're going to see that this is crucial to understanding what, what, why I say that the overcomer is not something that is true of every believer because overcoming the world is not something that every believer does. So we went from there to 1 John 5, 4. For all who have already been born of God, is the way I'm translating that, overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, what we have to decide there is this faith for salvation, faith for justification, phase one, or is this faith for the spiritual life afterward? And then we read, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And I'm just appalled and amazed how many people who, if they say anything, say, well, see, that means they're a believer, but believing Jesus is divine is not what you believe in order to be saved. And that is important. The reason that John mentions this in First John is because this is part of the problem his readers are dealing with. He's got these proto-Gnostics. They're not into full-blown Gnosticism yet, but it's already, a lot of the ideas are already on the scene by the late first century. And part of this issue is questioning the deity of Christ. And the reason understanding the deity of Christ is important is because he has to be the Son of God because that's what was predicted from the Old Testament, showing that he is the promised Messiah, and that because he is God, he is omnipotent, and he has the ability through his omnipotence to help us deal with any and every problem. Not only that, because he was in hypostatic union and he faced every temptation in all points as uh, he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, that qualified him to be our savior and our high priest. So we have to remember that when we see terms like faith, terms like belief, we have, and even saved, we have to ask which stage is it? Is it phase one or stage one? Justification belief in Christ's death for salvation, which happens in a second. We trust Christ and we're saved. And then after that, we enter into the spiritual life. And so we are to walk by faith and not by sight. That means we are to learn scripture and believe scripture and apply scripture for spiritual growth concluding with our glorification where faith is no longer operational. Today we walk by faith and not by sight, but when we get to heaven, we're, it's by sight. So faith is no longer operational. So now we're saved from the penalty of sin at justification. We're saved from the power of sin in our spiritual growth, and we're saved from the presence of sin. One other thing I want to observe is that what happens in Roman Catholic theology and Lordship theology and Lutheran theology, they're all very similar, is they don't separate justification from sanctification. They do it in different ways. But for Lordship salvation, if you're truly saved, sanctification or spiritual growth is inevitable to some degree. And in the position known as free grace, 
you have justification, but that does not necessitate your your growth, your advancement at all. That that idea comes out of the that fifth point, the P point I talked about last time in a tulip in five point Calvinism, perseverance of the saints. So we looked at First John five, four and five, that it's talking about those who have been born from above, born of God, overcome the world. That you can't overcome the world unless you have been born again. And only those who are walking as if in light of their new position in Christ are going to be able to overcome the world. And I went through a lot of verses last time showing the connection there that the overcomer is one who is abiding and he loves God and he knows God. That's not true of a baby believer. And I pointed that out that there are passages, the best passage is John 14 where uh, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father, and Jesus said, how long have I been with you, Philip, and you don't know me? So knowing Jesus isn't the same as getting saved. It is a result of spiritual growth. So we have these terms there, and the object of overcoming is the world. And uh, this is what's so important. Jesus overcame the world the one who is living in light of his regeneration overcomes the world. That would mean it's not phase one at the cross, it's phase two in terms of spiritual life. So what is this? The world is the translation of the Greek word cosmos, which basically means that which is of some sort of order. It can be something related to beauty, it can be something related to uh, structure of somebody's thinking, and that's the idea here, is the world is a system of thought. And John 6.33, Jesus had overcome the thinking of the world. And I pointed out last time that he had to deal with the thinking of the pagan thinking of the Romans, pagan thinking of the Greeks, because both of those were very present in um, Judah and in Galilee at that time, and he had to overcome the thinking of the Sadducees who were more liberal because they didn't believe in the existence of angels, they didn't believe in a literal physical bodily resurrection, and he believed, and they also, um, he also had to overcome the legalistic interpretation of the law by the Pharisees. So Jesus says, before he ever goes to the cross, I've already overcome the world. So that has nothing to do with what happens over the next three days. So we summarize this. Before Christ went to the cross, he overcame the world. And the world or worldliness is different from sin. It may involve sin, but they're different categories. And on the cross, Jesus paid the sin penalty that's related to our justification. And then fourth, in his life, he overcame the thinking of the world, setting the precedent for our victory over the thinking of the world. Thus, overcoming the world is a post-salvation phase two function of spiritual growth, not positional truth. It's not indicating that you're saved. So we have our three enemies, we have the devil, we have the world, and we have the flesh, the sin nature. And so this, it, the sin nature is dealt with on the cross, but we have to deal with the uh, devil who is going about like a roaring lion, uh, that is uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse, I mean uh, uh, 1 Peter 5, Five, five, I believe, and we have to deal with the world system, Romans 12.2, which is the verse coming up. We, have, we are not to be pressed into the mold of the thinking of the world. Here it's not cosmos. It's, it's, um, it's the word for sort of the spirit of the age, Ionos, the zeitgeist or spirit of the age were to be renewed by the renew, uh, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So that's the process of spiritual growth. We're transformed. We looked at James 3.15, three words he uses about earthly, worldly wisdom. It's earthy it, as opposed to meaning it's oriented to the earth and not heaven. Second, it's soulish. 
that is related to those who do not have spiritual life. They're spiritually dead. It relates to the views of naturalism, deism, existentialism, uh, postmodernism, and it's demonic. It's related to the thinking of Satan. So what does the Bible teach about worldliness? Well, first of all, worldliness is the type of thinking of the creature Lucifer in rebellion against God. It's how he thought. What are the characteristics of his thinking? And I summarize this under two words. He wants independence from God. That's autonomy. And it relates to arrogance. It's all about him. It's all about the self. He, he, he is the poster child of self-absorption. And then the other is antagonism. That is antagonism towards God. So if you can just hang everything on those two words, autonomy and antagonism, you understand the cosmic system, the world system. So the word has the idea of an arrangement or ordering of things and uh, three points about it from the uh, definition in the Greek lexicon. It relates to that which serves to beautify through decoration, adornment, or adorning. So Satan wants to beautify things. What was his first temptation to Eve? It was the lust of the eyes. He said, this fruit is good to eat, and she looked at it, and it looks good to eat. So he makes sin attractive. Second, a condition of orderliness. God is the God of order, so Satan does not like disorder. In disorder, he loses, but he is not omnipotent, so he can't control uh, the planet. And Satan's got a basic little problem, and that is that when he tempted Adam and Eve to sin, he created competition because he offered them, he said, you eat of the fruit, you'll be like God. Well, that's what Satan wanted to be, was to be like God. And so he's offering them uh, to be like God. And so now they want to compete with him to be God. And now there's almost six, maybe seven billion of us on the planet. So he has a lot of competition to be God. And uh, so it falls apart. And I think Lewis Berry Chafer wrote that the disorder in the world, the wars and the famines and everything else, are evidence of Satan's inability to control the world. Third point is that the sum total of everything here and now, the world, the orderly universe is all in this world, cosmos. So this is the word used when we learn that uh, God loved the world in this way. That is, everything within uh, and involves the planet. And secondly, Jesus said, I will draw the world to me. If I be lifted up, I will draw all the world to me. So that is what draws us to Christ. So in terms of the characteristics, now I'm going to get into a definition here. Uh, worldliness thus relates to all of the thought systems. This is the short definition. It relates to all of the thought systems of the world, all the philosophies, all the religions, all the mystical insights, all the ideas and ideologies. All of that is marshaled together to provide a rationale and justification for suppressing the truth and the knowledge of God in unrighteousness, for suppressing the knowledge of God, for disobeying God, and for justifying the acts of the sin nature. And we're all pretty good at that. And those of you who are parents, you probably have realized by this time at the age of all those little kids what the trends of their sin natures are. You probably have a pretty good handle on it, or you should. And uh, that's going to help you a lot as the as adolescence approaches. So all of these things are part of what Satan has developed in order to give us uh, attractive tools to justify our rebellion against God. So in expanding this, the biblical concept of worldliness describes, and the first thing it describes, are the collection of ideas, philosophies, religions, standards, values, purposes, and methods. Methods is important. Doing the right thing the wrong way is just as bad as doing the wrong thing the wrong way. 
And too many people don't understand how we do what we do is as important as what we do. But it's the philosophies, the important philosophies of people like Aristotle and Plato and Kierkegaard and Hegel and understanding that because it influences a lot of the uh, leadership in the world, but also just the the everyday philosophies of the guy who lives next door, his philosophy of life. It may be two beers every night when I come home and watching TV. That's his philosophy of life. I had somebody one time tell me, well, I'm not, you don't, I don't have a philosophy of life. I'm no philosopher. I said, that's your philosophy of life. You don't want to think about it. And that got, caught his attention. So all of this is designed to, uh, is expressed in every aspect of culture. It's expressed in individual and social relations. It's effect, and that would relate to politics. It re- relates to theories of knowledge and learning that it, which is uh, the framework for all of the education systems that you find in all the public schools. They all fit into one of these uh, satanic cosmic philosophies of education. And it's important to understand them. There's a book out right now called The Battle for the American Mind by Pete Hegseth, which is a fascinating book. I think every parent needs to read and understand because it exposes what's been going on in educational philosophy for over the more than the last hundred years. And it's, it's, I've read about the first 50 pages now. It's really, really well done. So we have to get into all these. It affects visual and performing arts. So when you go to the museum and you're looking at the paintings of different artists, they're expressing how they see reality and how they see the world. And that comes out. And so if you understand how um, how worldviews have shifted through the centuries, you see how it affects the visual arts as well as the music, the performing arts. It affects science and technology, literature. There's nothing untouched by the fall. There's nothing neutral. Remember, Satan was a musician, so he really understands music. And uh, I always like the old... The, the, the old line that when Satan fell, he landed in the choir loft. And then I add that he bounced into the Old Testament department at most seminaries because that's usually where the heresy starts because they have trouble believing the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So all of that's part of worldliness. And I think that if we're going to... Some people say, well, you don't need to know all that stuff. Well, if the Bible says... Don't be conformed to the world, to the sight guys, which is a broader sense, the spirit of the age, the worldview of the age even. If we don't know what the worldview of the age is and how it manifests itself, then how are you going to know whether or not you're being conformed to it? So we have to understand it in some degree. The focal point is not majoring and understanding the worldview. Some people will do that because that's what God's gifted them to do and called them to do to help the rest of us. But the main focal point is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the last sentence I have is when the Christian operates within this thought structure even though it may overlap in many ways. See, Satan likes 98% truth and 2% poison. As long as he got, has that 2% toxicity in there, he's going to win. So it may overlap in many ways with the biblical worldview, but it's still classified as worldliness. So worldliness isn't really what you do, it's how you think. Third point is that worldliness summarizes all human viewpoint, all satanic viewpoint, all demonic viewpoint. All of those ways of thinking are all the same. They manifest autonomy and antagonism to God. Autonomy towards man, antagonism towards God. So all of those, human viewpoint, paganism, satanic viewpoint, are all terms that are roughly synonymous. Now, what does the Bible say about some of the other passages on worldliness? In James 4.4, 4, it starts off, adulterers and adulteresses. Now, he's not talking literally here. He's not talking about sexual immorality at this point. Uh, this is the uh, gr- Greek word moikalis, 
and it has a metaphorical meaning as well as a literal meaning. In the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, um, Dr. Reiser writes, the theme of adultery is used in the New Testament in a metaphorical sense as in Old Testament prophecy. And then he says, James 4.4, where adulterers, which the RSV translated unfaithful creatures, are lovers of the world. Similarly, Israel is called an evil and adulterous generation as it is typified by its religious representatives. So that's what he's calling them unfaithful. They're unfaithful to God. And he says, do you not know that the friendship with God, uh, excuse me, the friendship with the world is enmity toward God? And the word friendship in that first line and then friend at the end both come from these forms of these two words at the bottom, philia, which is uh, refers to love or friendship, and then the masculine form of that word, philos, which refers to a friend or a relative. So it's friendship with the world, that is the cosmos, is enmity with God. That's uh, related to a different word, ekthros, which has to do with uh, antagonism or hatred or hostility. And this is talking about the enemy. So if you are a friend with the world, if you think that you can somehow, somehow compromise with these philosophical systems that are there, these rationales with postmodernism, with uh, Marxism, with Black Lives Matter, with Antifa, with all of these different groups, as well as scientism, Darwinism, and uh, all of the other isms that have come out of the 19th century, if you think you can somehow compromise uh, with the, and assimilate some of that with what the Word of God teaching, what the Bible says is you're an enemy of God. You're either a friend of God doing what God says and understanding God's Word and being transformed by the renewing of your mind, or you're hostile to God. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. You're either a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. Those are the options. So whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So now the next question is, well, who's in charge of the cosmos? And I think this is an interesting development as I've been working through how to express all of this again. I think this is an element I left out before is we're talking about the world. We're to overcome the world. Well, who runs the world system? Who runs the cos cosmic system? John twelve thirty one. Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. And he says, Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So he's talking about, again, before the cross, the world is judged, and the ruler of the world will be cast out at the cross. John 16, 8, he says, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. This is talking about the Holy Spirit when he comes. And the last phrase when he says the Holy Spirit will convict of judgment, Christ said, because the ruler of this world is judged. That's what happens at the cross as well. And then by the time you get to John 16:33, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have already overcome the world. So there's an important progression that takes place there that by the time you get to the time period just before the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I've overcome the world. Now when we get over to 1 John, so I had you open your Bibles to 1 John 2. 1 John is a complicated book to understand. It's real simple Greek. I always have, when I teach first-year Greek, I always have, have uh, this as part of translation because it's easy Greek. It's, it's interpretation and understanding that's complex. And so in 1 John 2, 12 through 14, we see the setup He's writing, and he mentions three different groups, little children, fathers, and young men. 
Now, he's not talking to them in terms of their chronological age. He's talking to them in terms of their spiritual maturation. So he says, I write to you little children. Now, pay attention to what he says here. We'll see him talk to little children again in a, in a, a little bit. He's writing to the little children, to the spiritual infants. He writes to you because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. They haven't done much yet, but they've trusted in Christ, so they've realized their forgiveness of their sins. Then in verse 13, he says, he skips over the young men. He talks to the mature ones. He says, I write to you fathers because you have known, perfect tense, you've come to know, you have come to know him who is from the beginning. You have reached that stage where you've come to have a deep personal relationship with God. And then he returns to the middle group. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Here we have our word nakao again, our word for overcoming. And But who's, what's overcome here? It's the wicked one. Who's the wicked one? John twelve thirty one. He's the ruler of the cosmic system. So see, that makes a connection here that when you look at the description here, you've overcome the wicked one, you've overcome the world. That ties together. You've overcome the ruler of the world. I write to you little children because you have known the Father. I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. So he's restating what he said about them in verse 13. And he says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Jesus said, if I, if you abide in me and my word abides in me, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. That connection there between uh, intimate fellowship with God is expressed through the word abide, the word minnow in the Greek. So he writes to little children who are spiritual infants, writes to fathers who are mature believers, who have a mature walk with the Lord, and then to young men, and they are specifically spelled out as having overcome the wicked one, the ruler of this age, because they are strong and the word of God abides in them. So when we just look at verse 13 and 14 and and color code it, it points out the emphasis on overcoming the ruler of the world. So overcome ties in to this same idea we see in other passages that it relates to overcoming the world. It's not what happens at the cross. Overcoming the world is the application of Romans 12.2. Then we go to the next verse. Notice what happens here. He goes from saying, young men, because you have overcome the, I'll just paraphrase it, you've overcome the ruler of this world. And then what does he say? He says, and at the end he says, you've overcome the wicked one again, which is Satan. Then he goes right into verse 15, do not love the world. So he's talked about the wicked one. He's talked about Satan as the uh, as is really the ruler of this wickedness, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, James said, if you love the world, you're at enmity with God. John says, if anyone loves the, the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Now, that doesn't mean he's not a believer. And this is what's called uh, an objective genitive, and so it should, it's not just love of the Father. That's just a bare translation. It needs to be interpreted. It's love directed toward the Father that you're not, you don't have a developing, maturing relationship with the Father if you're in love with the world. It can't happen. They're mutually exclusive. He goes on to explain this in verse 16, for all that is in the world. And then he breaks it down into three categories. The lust of the flesh, which is the appeal that uh, Eve had of the fruit, that it looked good to her to eat. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Uh, looking at it, the lust of the flesh was its appeal to her. It was good for food. 
And then the boastful pride of life, arrogance, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So when something appeals to fleshly lust, and that's not just sexual lust, that can be lust for material gain, it can be lust for uh, power, approbation lust, it can be, or excuse me, power lust, it can be lust for approval, approbation lust, lust for recognition, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, what you look at, and the boastful pride of life is characteristic of everything in the world. And so we need to learn to get out of that and to divest ourselves of that. Verse 17, and the world is passing away. It's temporal. He said this 2,000 years ago. It's a slow passing, but it's going. It's temporal. When we've been in heaven 10,000 years, we won't even remember it. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. And again, that word abide is rich with with the idea of fellowship. Then we skip down a few verses to 1 John 2.28, and he comes back to talking about those little children again. He says, and now little children, now they're saved But what do they need to learn? They need to learn to abide in Christ, John 15, 1 through 8. And now, little children, abide in him. Learn to walk in fellowship. Jesus said, if you don't abide in me, you cannot bear fruit. But the one who abides in me will bear fruit, much fruit, and much more fruit. Abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. See, that is those who are at the judgment seat of Christ and everything gets burned up. They have nothing of eternal value to go to be rewarded and go into heaven. And so now they have shame at the judgment seat of Christ. This isn't going to last long because Christ is going to wipe away every tear. And there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears for the old things have passed away. And so that takes us back to where we started. First John 5, 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That's the focal point here, is overcoming the world. That's what Christ did, and it's the result of living in light of your regeneration and growing and maturing. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, trusting in him. So what are our conclusions? I have two. First of all, the one who abides in Christ or is walking in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, is parallel to the overcomer. He is not simply a believer, because this isn't true of every believer, but it is true of the one who is abiding and walking. Second, the overcomer is therefore not something gained at salvation. It's not positional truth at phase one, but it's experiential truth that is part of, vital to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. So now we go back to where we started this in Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, to the overcomer, Jesus says, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with the Father on his throne. And we saw that what he overcame was the world and that this is evidence, how he does this is evidence in the young men that John is talking to in 1 John 2. And Christ overcame the world and we can overcome the world. So we see three elements in Revelation 3.21. First of all, the identification of the victorious believer. This is in contrast to the believer who's defeated because he has nothing rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. We see that Jesus overcame the world and that the throne that is referred to by the Lord Jesus Christ is my throne, is the throne that he gets when he is, if you go back to our study on the ascension and session, when he is, as the Son of Man, given the kingdom. And so that is not until the end of the tribulation um, uh, period. So I want to conclude with a two or three, I got think I've got four slides contrasting the 
uh, believers, the victorious believers with the defeated believers. But first of all, what do all resurrected believers have in common? First of all, we all get raptured. Everybody gets raptured. There's no partial rapture. There was that, that view floats around that only those who are spiritual get raptured. And if you're not spiritual when the rapture occurs, then you get left behind. That's not true. Every believer gets raptured. All get resurrection bodies. We all have the same quality resurrection body and will live for everlasting life. We all have perfect happiness, though the non-overcomers will have a period of shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, one thing that is often said is that we are all going to be totally satisfied. Everyone's cup will be full. Some people will have a demitasse cup because their capacity did not really develop in this life, so they've just got a really small cup. And then there's going to be others that come along, and they're going to have one of those big Texas-sized cups, and uh, they're going to have more. But everybody's cup is going to be full, and so their capacity is going to be realized, and they're going to be filled with joy. At, and nobody's going to be looking at somebody else's cup and going, well, why do you have more than me? Because you can't see capacity. So th- there will be perfect happiness for every believer, and all will have eternal life and spend eternity in heaven. But we're going to see in our study in Revelation 2 and 3 that there are going to be different privileges that are going to be distributed, and they're distributed on the basis of our rewards and our obedience and not equal uh, to everyone. So when we contrast victorious believers and defeated believers, the victorious believer, point number one, the victorious believer receives rewards, privileges, and blessings at the judgment seat of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians three twelve through 15. Second, The victorious believer is praised personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant, Matthew uh, 25. Third, victorious believers have different levels of privilege and authority in the kingdom. Some are going to be uh, ruling over a large number of believers. They're going to have the uh, 12 thrones of the 12 apostles. And then others will be ranked underneath them. So they're going to have different levels of privileges, different levels of authority. Fourth, the victorious believer is going to be at the wedding supper following the marriage of the bride. I think all believers will probably be there. I wrote this a long time ago, but I've modified my view on that. I think all believers will be at the wedding supper. There's no exclusion. Fifth point, victorious believers participate with Jesus Christ in his final defeat of Satan, Psalm 110.1 and Revelation 19. Now, in Psalm 110.1 and 2, if I remember correctly, it's not translated well in the English because of some textual corruption in verse 2, but it's, it's there in the Hebrew. Sixth, victorious believers will rule with Christ as kings and priests. So that's what happens with victorious believers. With defeated believers, they fail to put doctrine first in their life. They fail to count the cost, and they fail to apply the word and grow spiritually. They are like the first uh, three soils in the parable of the soils. They just can't quite get past all the distractions of the world around them. Second, defeated believers are often wonderful people, very nice and successful in the things of this world and the details of life, but they are not successful in their spiritual life and spiritual growth. Defeated believers become distracted by the details of life so that they get more, get consumed with creature comforts and success and recognition. There's nothing wrong with those things. But when they take priority over your walk with the Lord, then it becomes a distraction. Fourth, there's a temporal loss of blessing and happiness, uh, often as a result of not walking with the Lord under divine discipline. 
Then there's shame at the judgment seat of Christ, as we saw in 1 John 2.28. Six, there's a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3.15 and Revelation 2.11. They become disinherited, but they do not lose their salvation. Think of the prodigal son. He goes off and he gets his inheritance from his father, and he blows it. He goes off to Las Vegas, gambles it all away, and he has nothing left, so he's living with the pigs and eating the food of the pigs. When he goes home, the father forgives him, welcomes him home, throws a big party, but where's his inheritance? He squandered it. But he's his father's son, and he has a place, and, and so he will continue. So he's disinherited lost his inheritance, but he doesn't lose his salvation. Seventh, defeated believers will enter the kingdom, but they will not inherit the kingdom, Galatians five nineteen to 21 and 1 Corinthians 6, 10. And then eighth, their rewards will be destroyed in the lake of fire. It's the second death. It doesn't say that those who practice these things will go to the lake of fire. It says they're their portion, their meros, that's a term for inheritance, will, go, will be thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. And we'll look at that next, next time. That's a, a little more advanced study. So we'll come back next time to look at what the Bible teaches about the overcomer in Revelation 2 and 3, but also we're going to look at some key passages that come up in Revelation 21 and 22 that really help understand why this means that the overcomer is a second category or is a is a elite category, as it were, of, of believers. Okay? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thanks for this time that we have to study these things. And you know, we're reminded that we need to pursue excellence in our spiritual life, that this needs to be our priority. And the time is short. We don't know whether we have a day, a month, a year, a decade, or two decades, but we need to be prepared at any moment to be taken home. The rapture could occur tomorrow, and we need to recognize that we should be overcomer believers and not those who are distracted by the world. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us to think about these things, think about what these passages mean, and how we can apply them to our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.